This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Deliminal Corvid Press. This is episode 191. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 49 in my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, our heroes were forced to split up in order to continue their mission. Kate's combat trauma has left her unable to shoot, and time is running out before the Brotherhood completes their dark ritual. They can't just call in the cops through the usual channels. That would tip off Captain Shaw and the other cultists on the police force, who would make sure the Brotherhood was never caught. They need to contact someone they know they can trust— someone who can hand-pick a team of cops who are known to be trustworthy. One such person is Captain Joe Montgomery of Precinct 9, but Montgomery's authority is limited to his own precinct, so if they're going to form a posse to go after the Brotherhood, they need someone with city-wide jurisdiction. That man is Wendell Schubert, the district attorney. He's an old family friend of Lizzie's, and she's convinced he can be trusted to get them the help they need. Michael called Montgomery to fill him in on the plan. Then he, Callie, and Lizzie escorted Will to meet D.A. Schubert. The plan is for Will to give a statement about how the Brotherhood kidnapped him, and how they're still holding police psychologist Jared Tamlin. That will give Schubert the justification needed to form his posse and shut the cult down. Meanwhile, Kate received a telepathic message from Jared. The Brotherhood is channeling a ley line through him which provides them with a continuous supply of arcane power and a pathway to contact the shackled god. Fortunately, that same connection gave Jared a link to the outside world, letting him send a message through the ley line to where Kate could hear it. Based on the way his aura has colored the ley line's mana, Kate concluded that Jared must be close, no more than two kilometers away. With this information, she, John, Morgan, and Murakir were able to circle around to the north of the ritual site, upstream of their connection to the ley line. Now, Murakir will use his earth magic to build a channel to divert the ley line's course, redirecting it to a nearby mountain. That will cut the power to the Brotherhood's ritual, so even if they succeed in completing it, they won't have enough mana to hold open the portal to the Shackled God's prison. Kate is resolved to help Murakir complete the ritual, while John and Morgan will keep an eye out for Brotherhood activity. If all goes well, the cult won't know anything is happening until Kate and Murray pull the plug on them. The Lost and the Least A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester
Chapter 49 District Attorney Wendell Schubert lived in an upper-middle-class apartment complex on the third level of Bayman Tower. Michael, Lizzie, Callie, and Will presented themselves to the guard on duty at the front desk, who made a call upstairs to confirm they were expected. A minute or two later, the guard pressed a button to open the doors on the passenger lift, and they rode it up twelve floors to Schubert's flat. Rather than knock on the apartment door, Lizzie opened her phone and sent a text. The D.A. opened the door a few seconds later. D.A. Schubert was a tall and stout theriomorph, whose ancestors, Michael guessed, had probably been from some sort of Northland's warrior tribe. The curse had given him the fur and features of a sea otter, which should have made him look cuddly and innocuous, but there were heavy muscles on a sturdy frame under all that fur and blubber. Michael had seen the D.A. arguing cases in court before, and in cross-examination, he could be downright terrifying. When he opened the door tonight, though, his muzzle parted in a broad grin, and he caught up Lizzie in a massive bear hug. Hey there, kitten, he said. His voice was deep and rumbling, though he was clearly trying to be quiet given the lateness of the hour. Hey, Uncle Chooch. Lizzie said, as she pressed her face against his chest and squeezed him hard. Thanks for letting us come by so late. No trouble at all, Schubert assured her. We can talk in my office. Is Aunt Viv asleep? Lizzie asked. The otter man nodded. It's all right. She won't hear us with the door closed. Lizzie turned around and pressed her finger to her lips, in case any of the others might not have gotten the message. They all nodded solemnly and followed her and Schubert into the apartment. The lights were all out in the flat, except for a few strategically placed nightlights, so Michael didn't see much until they reached the DA's office. Schubert turned on a couple of table lamps, filling the office with a warm, golden light, then shut the door behind them. Michael took in the polished walnut desk, the bookshelves lined with reference volumes, the comfortable-looking leather couch and love seat, and the paintings of ships and seabirds that decorated the walls. Have a seat, Schubert said, as he grabbed his office chair and wheeled it out from behind his desk. What's going on, and how can I help? Lizzie and Michael took opposite ends of the couch, leaving the love seat for Callie and Will. Oddly, the young man sat as far apart from his girlfriend as the narrow space permitted. He looked deeply preoccupied, and more than a little agitated. Maybe it's a side effect of whatever Morgan gave him when they rescued him. He looked like he was on some kind of high-powered stimulant and wasn't enjoying the side effects. He fidgeted constantly, scratching his arms and rubbing his palms absently on his pant legs. Callie kept her attention primarily on Lizzie and the D.A., but she kept snatching uneasy looks at Will out of the corner of her eye. Lizzie perched on the edge of the couch, turning her eyes fully on Schubert. Do you remember the midnight snatcher killings back in 73? Immediately, the otter morph's expression went grave. Of course. I was a freshman at Chisholm back then. When Hin Khaled was arrested, the whole campus heard about it. His eyes went distant, and his fur rippled in a kind of full-body shiver. Nasty business. I'm surprised to hear you mention it, though. That was long before you were born. Lizzie just conceded this with a nod. 
The Midnight Snatcher M.O. is being repeated as we speak. Last night, S.I.D. took Nevin Adlito into custody. You heard about the raid in Social? Schubert frowned. Yes, I was briefed this morning. Five accomplices dead, and Ardlito intends to make a full confession. No one said anything about the Snatcher, though. Captain Shaw seemed to think the matter was settled. Lizzie hesitated, the tip of her tail twitching. I have reason to believe that is inaccurate, sir. Well, Michael thought, that sounds better than saying the captain of S.I.D. is lying to you. Lizzie gestured at Will, who still sat fidgeting in silence on the love seat, and Callie, whose expression was unreadable. These two were my partner's C.I.'s. Will was assisting me on this case when he was abducted and confined in an old water treatment center on the west side. This was after the raid on Aunt Leto's residence. He also witnessed the false imprisonment of another man, whom I believed to be Dr. Jared Tamlin of Precinct 9. At this, Schubert turned to examine Will more closely. Will took a deep breath and sat up straighter. You're willing to give a statement, son? Schubert asked. Will set his jaw and nodded. Yes, sir. All right. Schubert took out his phone, turned on the voice memo app, and dictated a few lines of attorney speak before setting the phone on the corner table next to Will. Whenever you're ready, start at the beginning. Tell me everything you can remember. For the next fifteen minutes or so, Will described his abduction, imprisonment, and torture at the hands of the so-called Brotherhood. The kid had a knack for vivid description, no doubt due to his experience as a writer. He also detailed his conversations with Jared and what he could remember of the man's appearance. I only saw him once, Will said. The rest of the time we spoke through a hole in the wall. That's fine, Schubert assured him. Do you know what happened to him? No, Will said, sounding worried. The last time I saw him was when they were carrying me away to... to do what they did to me. I woke up back in my cell with Dr. Drowling and Kate and the others. Schubert looked questioningly at Lizzie, who then picked up the narrative and explained how they had found Will. The DA looked particularly alarmed when she described the summoning trap that had been set around Will's prison cell. Someone knew we were coming for him, Lizzie said, an edge of anger in her voice. They knew we were tracking down the Brotherhood, and they left Will in that cell as bait. Schubert leaned in closer to her. How many people knew about your investigation? Apart from those directly in our team, only two, as far as I know. The first was the immortal, Murakir Kunis. He has chosen my partner Kate as his current pawn, and was apparently following her under a veil. Schubert looked more alarmed by that than by the news of the Brotherhood. Murakir is active again? He sat slowly back in his chair, looking stunned. Prophet, help us. The only time Murakir shows up is when things are about to go to hell. Lizzie exchanged a look with the others. In this case, that description might be more apt than you know. The cult's opening a portal to their god, Callie said. It's slow, because it takes a shit-ton of mana, but it's going down tonight. My partner's with Murakir now, Lizzie said. He intends to cut off the Brotherhood's ability to complete the ritual, but they need backup to raid the site and arrest the cultists. Of course, Schubert said, steepling his fingers in front of his face. 
but there must be a reason you came to me about this, and not Captain Shaw. There is, Lizzie said. Her voice had abruptly gone subdued, and her eyes lowered to the floor. Captain Shaw was the only other person we told about our investigation. They're the only one who knew where Will and I had gone when Will was abducted. She hesitated, then added, And Shaw was a member of the Key and Arch Society at Chisholm, the same society as Artlito, and the Midnight Snatcher, and seemingly every other member of this cult. Schubert's reaction was slower this time. First puzzlement, then realization, and then a slow, creeping horror that passed over his face in a cold wave. Lizzie, he said softly, do you understand the accusation you're making? The Keen Arch isn't just an honor society. They're... hell, they're kingmakers. So I gathered. They kept Captain Montgomery silent about their activities for the last twenty-seven years. If they could silence him, there's no telling how many others they've compromised. She leaned forward and took Schubert's hand, her tail lashing with anxiety. We need help, Uncle Chooch. We need it tonight, and I have no idea whom we can trust to give it, except you. The two theriomorphs gazed long and gravely at each other, gripping their hands tightly. Slowly, Schubert nodded. All right, he said. I have a few favors I can call in. Let's get to work. Wednesday, May 23rd Morgan watched as Kate and Murakir made a slow, careful circuit around their casting circle. The sigils and patterns that would focus the incantation were all in place, but if a sign had been incorrectly drawn, or a circle had been improperly connected, now was the last chance to adjust it without breaking the spell and starting over. The two wizards conferred quietly as they walked, their words an impenetrable jargon. Morgan thought back to all the times Kate had begged her to translate from doctor to cop in the autopsy room, and the look of frustrated incomprehension on her face at some bit of med-speak. Now, she supposed, she could understand what that felt like. John sidled up to her, running an affectionate hand along the small of her back. Morgan smiled and leaned into him. "'How's it coming?' he asked, nodding toward the magic circle. Honestly, I haven't the faintest idea, Morgan admitted. John flashed a quick grin at her honesty. Want to give me a hand outside, then? Morgan took one more anxious look at Kate and Murakir. Their backs were turned, and the immortal did not seem to be planning Kate's imminent demise. Still, she hesitated. I'd like to, darling, but... She trailed off, then made a frustrated gesture at the skunk morph. John leaned in toward Morgan's ear. He needs her, he murmured. She'll be fine for now, I promise. Come on, this is important. Reluctantly, Morgan turned away and let herself be led from the room. John took her around to the back of the shop, where a set of steel ladder rungs were mounted directly to the exterior wall. John climbed up, and Morgan followed. Once they reached the top, John clambered over the edge onto the roof, keeping his profile as low as possible. Morgan crept silently up beside him, 
and John led the way to the southern end of the building. Their new vantage point did not grant them that much additional height, at least not compared to the towers around them. Still, ten meters of elevation was better than none from a tactical standpoint, and it did give them a better view of the other low-level buildings over the underground river. About thirty meters ahead, Morgan could see a pair of men standing guard at the entrance to a small and unassuming building. Four more men stood atop nearby rooftops, covering the building from all sides. Morgan could make out the glint of long guns, probably military-style rifles, carried by each of the men. The security over there seems a bit excessive, doesn't it? Compared to the rest of this area? Definitely. John said. Either that's the cult's entry point, or we stumbled onto a syndicate arms depot. Morgan pursed her lips. If Elizabeth's reinforcements try to force their way through that, a lot of people are going to get hurt. I think you're right. And if they figure out what Kate and Murakir are doing over here, they could stop them from shutting down the Brotherhood's ritual. Morgan squinted at the men, trying to read their body language. They seemed watchful, but not like they expected imminent attack. They also weren't particularly looking in the direction of the repair shop. I don't think they know we're here, she said at last. If we can turn their attention in another direction, we might keep it that way. John gave her a sidelong glance. A diversion? Do you have something in mind? Morgan smiled. It was shortly after midnight, and Schubert was just finishing up the last of his phone calls when Michael noticed the telltale flicker of red and blue emergency lights coming from the DA's office window. Michael went to the blinds and peered out. Did some of them say they were going to meet you here? he asked. Schubert frowned. No, we agreed to meet at the site you gave me. Why? Michael did a quick head count because I make at least twelve officers on the Skyway outside. It looks like they're blocking all the exits to the parking garage. Callie was at his side in an instant, looking down at the cruisers parked below. Lizzie and Schubert followed a moment later. Those aren't the people I called, Schubert said, sounding uneasy. I don't recognize the numbers on the squad cars. I do, Lizzie said. Those two down there? Those are S.I.D. Somebody squealed, Callie said. She turned to Schubert. You go down there, you're dead. You too, Will. Will swallowed visibly. The D.A. crossed his arms and flexed his claws against his shirt sleeves, a civilized man mightily restraining himself from going full berserker. Is there another way out of the apartments? Lizzie asked. The question seemed to shake Schubert out of his growing anger, replacing it with uncertainty. I suppose there must be. I've never thought about it. Callie pulled out her phone. It was an old-fashioned model, with few modern features, but it had a push-to-talk instant connect button, which she used now. Ferret to base. Come in. Evan's voice answered almost immediately. Base here. What can we do for you, Ferret? Enemy blues are locking down the area. We need an exit route, fast. Stand by. After a moment, he added, Oh, that's lovely. We can see more of them converging on the fourth and second skyways as well. 
They aren't being very subtle, are they? Will asked. Don't they risk exposing themselves? If your testimony makes it to trial, they're exposed regardless, Michael said. They have nothing to lose. If they've survived this long, they know how to cover up a hit, Callie said. Her eyes narrowed as she watched the officers outside. They'll find a way to pin it on the Reds or the Whites or some loner skag nobody'll miss. Evan's voice came back on the speaker. The north side of Bayman has a sky bridge to Grappen Tower between the second and third levels. It doesn't look like the Blues are watching it yet. Got it, Callie said. Push the blueprints to Lizzie's phone. Transmitting now. Lizzie's phone chimed a few seconds later, and she pulled up the schematics of the two towers. Thanks, Base, Callie said. You'd best be quick, Evan warned. It won't take long for them to figure out where you've gone. I have an idea about that, Michael said. He gestured for the phone, and Callie handed it to him. Pressing down the transceiver button, he said, Base, I'm going to buy them some time. Can you access the tower's security system? Of course. Evan sounded almost insulted at the thought that such a thing might be beyond them. Good. Shut down all the lifts and get a live uplink going for this apartment. You'll know what to do next. Understood. Michael handed the phone back to Callie. Be careful. Callie nodded sharply. You too. As they headed for the door, Lizzie and Schubert stopped in front of Michael. Their expressions pinched and worried. Corporal, my wife is asleep in the bedroom, Schubert said. He was clearly working hard to control his emotions, and when he gripped Michael's hand, his claws dug in a little too far. She has some mobility issues. She can't go with us. If they're after me, the only thing I can do to protect her is be elsewhere. But... I understand, Michael said, looking the DA in the eyes. If my idea works, they won't go anywhere near her. Schubert still looked worried, but the weight on his shoulders seemed to ease a little. Thank you, son. Lizzie looked closely at Michael's eyes, then leaned in and kissed his cheek. Good luck. Michael reached up and touched the spot, then smiled in spite of himself. You too. Moments later, the rest of the team was gone, headed for the emergency exit that would take them to the rear stairwell. Michael came out of Schubert's office into the living room-slash-entry hall area. The front door hung open, doubtless because of the haste of their departure, and Michael left it that way. He found the light switches and flipped them on. Small black security cameras were positioned on the ceiling in three places— and Michael adjusted two of them to focus on a single spot near the middle of the living room, a large, heavy coffee table in front of a wide couch. It had a glass top and a wrought iron frame with lots of decorative loops and rings making patterns beneath the glass. Michael made a phone call. Despite the lateness of the hour, the other person picked up on the second ring. The conversation took less than two minutes. As soon as he rang off, his phone chimed with a text message. He switched over to the messaging app and read, Blues in lobby now. Four entering front stairwell. ETA, one minute. Carefully, with trembling hands, Michael took out his sidearm, badge, and identification 
and laid them out neatly at one end of the coffee table. He locked his phone and placed it beside them. He sat down on the couch near the opposite end of the table, out of arm's reach, though still in view of both security cameras. Then he took out his handcuffs, attached one cuff to his left wrist, and the other to one of the heavy iron loops in the frame of the coffee table. Then he spread both palms flat on the surface of the table, and waited. Moments later, the door to the front stairwell slammed open, and heavy boots thudded down the hallway toward Schubert's apartment. Don't shoot! Michael shouted. Don't shoot! I surrender! The men arrived at the apartment seconds later, and stopped short at the sight of Michael, disarmed and cuffed to the coffee table. They were SID SWAT officers, and they trained their automatic rifles on Michael. Don't move! one of them shouted, though Michael clearly wasn't moving, and couldn't have gone far in any case. Michael looked up at the security camera in front of him, and pitched his voice for the microphone it was connected to. My name is Corporal Michael Pirelli. I have aided and abetted the actions of a group of criminals. I am here to surrender. And that's the end of Chapter 49. Come back next time, when Callie tries to get her team to safety, and John and Morgan tell Kate about their plan to distract the Brotherhood. Ray Bradbury said, Let the world burn through you. Throw the prism light, white hot, on paper. So adjust your focus and step into the light. It's time for the weekly writing report. I wrote 2,962 words this week, over the course of 3.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 790 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 245 days without breaking my chain. This week I made a bit more progress on the flower garden, which is now up to 2,600 words. On Friday evening, though, I set it aside, because I got one of those flashes of inspiration that writers love to talk about, but so rarely experience. You may or may not be aware of this, depending on how you use social media, but there are a lot of people who post writing prompts on Tumblr. I did a quick search on Google for writing prompts on Tumblr, and it came back with over 34 million hits. Now, I am not on Tumblr myself, but I do follow a lot of writers and writing-related groups on Facebook, and a lot of the weirdest and most creative Tumblr prompts end up getting shared around on there. Well, I saw one of these prompts on Friday, which said something along the lines of, The earth is hell, humans are the demons, and a wizard has just summoned you to do his bidding. Then I went out walking my dogs, and by the time I was done, that one idea had metastasized into a full-blown storyline. I stayed up an hour past my bedtime, wrote about 900 words, and then got up early on Saturday morning and wrote another 3,000 words before lunch. So, yeah, this story is running at full gallop. So stay tuned for further updates on my comedic portal fantasy, The Dark Lord Steve. I'm also happy to report that Homecoming is now available in trade paperback. 
If you've been wanting to read my new erotic fantasy, but you were waiting to get it in Dead Tree Edition, now's your chance. I'll put up a link in the show notes. And now, the feedback. Hi, Chris. It's Sarah Testarossa. It's been a long time since I've called in with commentary, but I am caught up with The Lost in Elite, and I'm really enjoying it. A couple of notes at the beginning of the latest chapter when Kate was being self-deprecating about her inability to fight. I was just thinking that it was actually very similar to something that I thought the first time I watched Yuri on Ice. It was like, someone educate this poor dear on mental health stuff because obviously her pre-existing attitudes are not so great and don't actually understand that this is not a character flaw that she has, like, a mental problem. But, yeah, I do think you really did a great job with portraying her PTSD and also her reaction to it. It's like it's a sucky reaction, but it's understandable given her character. Hey, Sarah, welcome back. You're right, of course. The fact that Kate is suffering from post-traumatic stress is in no way a character flaw. It is, however, a kind of disability, and one that could potentially get in the way of Kate being a cop. Coming to terms with that possibility and what it means for her future is a big part of the growing that Kate needs to do. I also really like how John was kind of an MVP in the last couple chapters. He just really pulled out all the stops there, and it's been nice seeing him being helpful as part of the team, because before we saw him more in the you know emotional support for Kate slash sex-related stuff. So it was, it's cool to see him as part of the fight and remind her that, yeah, he, he's a danger. He can, he, he can hold his own. He, he knows what he's doing here, and he can be super hella brave and go into fairy with iron. So that was really cool. Yeah, it was very cool for me, too. John is one of those characters where I was never completely sure how he was going to act until he got into the situation. It's been fun watching him learn what sort of circumstances inspire him to be brave and selfless. I also, thank you for the reminder with uh, the scene with Callie and Will, I'd forgotten about how much him growing up religious was a thing for him, and so it's good that like Callie was thinking about that, because it makes sense, that, and that's, I'm sure that's going to play into how he ends up feeling when he finds out he has vampire blood in him now. Also, I kind of laughed out loud at the not all mages, because it made me think of other similar phrases. But I, I do feel for him, and just like, hey, it was the way he was going to get to survive. I mean, it's kind of one of those, you got to do what you got to do things. I don't think Callie would have been happy, or yeah, I don't think he would have been happy if he had died there. Well, <laughs> great. Now I'm thinking about him being a ghost and Abby Preston having to deal with him. Oh, man. Will would be the world's most neurotic ghost. Why am I not in heaven? Is this hell? Is this purgatory? Were the ecclesiasts right after all? What if there is no heaven? What if I'm like this forever? Talk about an existential crisis. Oh, oh so much intertwining of characters. Anyway, the last thing, I really love Morgan's uh, kind of crowning moment of badass when she was being defensive of Kate and of herself when Merrick here wasn't trusting Morgan. I, I really like the whole two people here out of the three love her unconditionally, so which one do you think is going to be the one to betray? 
is like kind of calling him the fuck out on that because he has been shown to um, not be as kind to his pawns in the past. I mean, let um, Jacob die. Yeah, I thought that was great. And his Mercier's respect there was, I, I was really hoping for it. So it was nice to see that after that, you know, moment of pause, he did show his respect to Morgan. Although him talking about her being, you know, newly immortal, basically, and in a couple of lifetimes she'll lose that humanity. I think that was something that I hadn't really thought about. And yet he's very different than humans. But then again, he was never just a plain vanilla human, if that makes sense. Like, Morgan was. Like, he was a super powerful mage before he even became immortal. And the whole thing with him and the shackled god, with all of that, I wonder if he's projecting a bit and that Morgan, through effort, can indeed maintain her humanity throughout many, many generations. Because I feel like if anyone would try to do that, it would be Morgan. Not just out of defiance and not just out of caring for people, but I, I think that she's the kind of person who would do that. But it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I have no idea if we're seeing Morgan many generations in the future. I'm just very curious now. Yeah, Mercury is definitely projecting. He's been fighting an endless war for a thousand years, and he's had to sacrifice parts of his own humanity in the process. And if you read Rix's Metamore Keep stories that showed Murray in his youth, he wasn't ever someone who had a whole lot of friends. But it's also true that immortals in general have a hard time maintaining their human perspective. I talk more about this in the behind-the-episode author commentary for this chapter, so I encourage folks to check that out on Patreon when it's released. Anyway, I think that's it for now. Wishing you well, and wishing the family well. Y'all take care, and... um. Happy writing on that new short story and whatever else. And I am looking forward to reading Homecoming. So, yes, take care. I'm taking a break from the podcast for the next two weeks. Mal and I are going on a road trip to Michigan, New York, and Virginia. We'll be visiting family and friends and attending the wedding of our dear Metamore City librarian, Mildred Katie. It should be a wonderful time and I'm hoping to get a chance to relax and do some writing along the way. I'll be back with the next episode on June 30th. See you then! If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900. Then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, 
no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.